Hello, and welcome to Somebody Call a Doctor, a podcast stemmed in curiosity, where we interview new PhDs and PhD candidates to better understand the diverse research topics being studied and talk about the impact their outcomes will have on technology and society. I'm your host, Colin Andrews. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Nikki Avila about electricity. Nikki Avila is a recent PhD in Energy and Resources at Berkeley. Her graduate research focused on solar grid integration and climate policy in California, and on electrification in Sub-Saharan Africa and Southeast Asia. We'll be talking about her research and its implications, the process of getting a PhD, and ask her why you'd call her if somebody said, somebody call a doctor. And now, welcome Nikki. All right, Nikki, well, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thanks so much for being here. So why don't we start, just give a quick introduction about you and your research, and then we'll get into it. Sure. So I am a scientist from the Energy and Resources Group at University of California, Berkeley. I started my studies as an engineer. I studied uh, petroleum engineering, worked in the oil and gas industry. I transitioned to renewables by going to graduate school. And there I studied how to integrate more renewables into our power systems and also explored how to increase electricity access in Southeast Asia and Sub-Saharan Africa. Oh, great. So you've had experience in the oil industry as well. So you've kind of seen both sides. Yeah, exactly. So can you give a brief overview of the state of our grids in the United States versus some of the less mature grids like in Lagos and in some of the emerging economies you talked about? Yeah, the United States has a very well-functioning grid, has really high reliability I think the expectation of power supply in the United States is high. When you switch on a light, you expect the the light to come on. And this is the case for most of the global north. Compared to a place like Nigeria, where Nigeria has abundant energy resources, but those resources are not transformed into electricity services. So a typical household may only get about five to six hours of electricity every day, and there's no telling when that electricity is going to come through or not. In a time of climate change and thinking about how we're going to transform our energy systems, there's the question of how do we integrate more renewables, greener energy into the electricity system, but also what do we do about countries that don't even have an electricity system that's strong or developed enough to be asking these questions? So you said a lot of the energy wasn't going towards electricity in the household. What is it going to? Well, if you think about Nigeria, it's one of the largest producers of oil and gas. And so most of that oil is not channeled into the electricity uh, sector to generate power. Uh, Nigeria has about 80% of its electricity generators coming from natural gas and the other 20% from hydropower. And so your your natural understanding would say, well, you're the highest producer of one of the highest producers of oil and gas. You should have a, a great electricity sector. But yeah. um, most of the generators are under maintained, um, don't have um, enough financial um, backing to continue to operate. The electricity grid itself is failing. It's under maintained as well. The supply of natural gas within the country is very volatile due to, you know, regional conflicts. You know, we're very susceptible to foreign markets in in the oil and gas industry. So there's a lot of pressure on Nigeria's energy sector to kind of focus on the production of oil and gas rather than the transformation of that oil and gas into electricity for its citizens. 
And so you're saying that now the penetration of solar in that grid is, is basically nothing? The Yeah, the penetration of solar, you have to think of, so the questions in the United States are mainly how do we, you know, integrate solar, just like you said. But in Nigeria, there's a lot of self-generation. There's a lot of mm. household uh, distributed generation. And so, yes, we're not we're not talking about high penetrations of large scale solar. Um, that's definitely in the works in Nigeria. If you look at our solar map, we're right there by the equator. We have a lot of solar radi- irradiation, but the issue remains, how do we transform you know, an energy potential into electricity services? And so far, Nigeria does not have a high penetration of solar. And they could, if they wanted to, if some of these um, energy policies are transformed to incentivize that. And I guess I made an assumption there that solar is the uh, more common renewable to use. Are there other renewables that are emerging as as better or no, more accessible? That is a correct assumption that solar would be the most common renewable to use. And the other one would be wind. But even if you compare the wind and the solar potential in Nigeria, solar is greater. So that is a correct assumption, but um, it hasn't been integrated. We're currently 80% natural gas. So, so with these new and emerging technologies in clean energy, what sort of pressures are we getting from organizations, government, or or even within the community? Yeah, that's a that that's really was the focus of my PhD, trying to understand how not just the technical transformation of the energy system, but also the social transformation of those energy systems. And I think you hit a good point. What are the key drivers that are pushing that transformation? I think globally climate change is a huge driver. Um, We see climate conferences around the world every year talking about energy transformation. Sitting here in California, California has one of the most aggressive energy, uh, renewable energy goals. The legislator just recently passed a 100% renewable energy goal. I think there's definitely like a political pressure to transform to more renewables. Then I think the second pressure then would be just access in terms of some people are calling it a human right. That's not well clearly defined yet, but I think there's a general global drive to say that there are over 1 billion people in the world, mostly located in Africa and in Southeast Asia, that do not have access to modern energy services. And so that is a huge pressure, particularly coming from the United Nations in driving how we can change that. That's the second pressure. So climate change, electricity access. I think the third one that's growing, it's not quite as prominent yet, but it's really focusing on equity. You you could kind of say that equity is an umbrella under the first two drivers. So we're thinking about intergenerational equity when we think about climate change. So how do we ensure that we leave enough resources or we leave the planet safe enough for our future generations? I think equity is a driver for the climate change pressures. Equity is a driver for the access pressures. Um, you can't have access to quality health care, quality education, um, even just a high quality of life if you don't have energy. Yeah. And so the third equity driver is growing. It's, it's growing in political pressure. It's growing in social pressure. It's growing even in academic pressures. You see more of the academic research is moving towards understanding how equity, social equity can be a driver for energy transformation. That's that's wonderful. It, it sounds like those are all very positive pressures that we're seeing. Yeah. Um. I def, I expected there to be something, some sort of negative pressure from oil and gas companies or government. Do, do you see any of that? 
You know, that's a good question. Um, I definitely, I mean, just from the news, I wouldn't say I'm 100% sure of the evidence of uh, oil and gas subverting the renewable energy industry. I know they definitely have denied climate change for some for some time, and some of some of the oil and gas industry uh, stakeholders are turning around and seeing climate change kind of as a business opportunity to transform. Hmm. Yeah, there's definitely resistance. I wouldn't say the there's pressure, negative pressure. I think it's just more of the inertia of such a large industry to change. And obviously, you know, the political climate of the United States for there to be an opportunity to even question if climate change is real. So that kind of gives a lot of space for uh, resistance. But yeah, I think most of the transformations in the renewable energy industry today, maybe not originally, but today are financial. The hmm. electricity contracts that, that uh, producers are signing for solar are much cheaper than you know five years ago. So regardless of the social political state of climate change, I think the, the uh, economics are driving towards clean energy. You mentioned the technology getting cheaper. Is that because the technology itself is improving? Yes, uh, I think particularly for solar, well, solar and wind, the technology is improving, economies of scale, the more that is adopted, the cheaper it gets. Um, mm. One key difference between you know, traditional, maybe natural gas or diesel generator compared to a solar generator is that there is no variable cost. So you don't have to keep paying for the energy is all capital investment. And so, yeah, definitely the, fin the financials are looking better for renewables. It's, it's really nice to hear that there's a lot more positive pressures than negative, especially with the type of work you do. Yeah, yeah, it's a lucky time to be in this space for sure. Yeah, so what about the difference in the adaption between some of the developing areas of the world versus the US um, and other of the global north? It seems like some of the emerging economies would be more open to new and emerging technologies. So you seeing that? Yeah, yeah, that's definitely, definitely the case. I think if you if you have a young electricity grid, so the electricity grid can be seen as kind of a very large infrastructure that is really hard to change, not only not only in terms of like, technical change or like physical change, but in terms of institutional change. Um, you have electricity grid operators who've been working there 20, 30 years. It's not just do we swap out diesel for, or do we swap out natural gas for solar? Is how do we train, retrain institutional practices in the electricity industry? But younger electricity grids in emerging economies have that adaptability. They're agile enough to re to refocus. And I think one of the most interesting things, and this was one of my projects during my PhD, is to explore other motivations for energy transformation besides climate change. So you can have a country like Kenya. Kenya went through a severe drought um, in the 90s, and they were almost 80% hydropower. Now, Kenya has one of the largest percentages of wind on the continent. And, you know, some may say, well, that's climate change driving. Yes, for sure. Climate change is a driver for wind adoption, but also energy security and resiliency. Kenya did not want to depend only on water anymore. So, you know, younger younger uh, electricity grids have that adaptability to transform. The United States, though, even with its institutionalized inertia, the political pressures are, I would say, a little bit stronger. So in 
you know, in other countries, maybe something else may drive that transformation. At least I can say in California, that transformation is driven mostly by law. <laughs> and so hmm. you have to trans you have to transition to renewables. It's not really a question of if you want to or not. And that that law is being driven by those three pressures that you talked about earlier. Yeah, I definitely think so. I think climate change is a huge driver for for the California government and has they've um, kind of positioned themselves as a leader in thinking about not only how to mitigate climate change from, um, you know, transitioning to a greener electricity grid, but also how to adapt, you know, we're sitting here on the coast. So how do we ensure that we're resilient, we're a resilient place to live? So can you talk a little about some of the surprising things you saw people doing to mitigate some of the energy challenges or any inventive solutions or creative workarounds? Yeah, I, I think that's maybe the most interesting question that I've I've had throughout my PhD, trying to make comparisons across two very different countries, trying hmm. to see similar or not so similar behaviors. And I think two things. One is that Nigeria is a place of incredible innovation in a space where there isn't really enough incentive or resources to innovate. Nigerians have innovated for many, many years around energy. And that's kind of the space I grew up in. And, you know, someone may say, well, diesel generators is not really innovation. That's a little bit of a, a subpar solution because diesel generators are expensive, they're noisy. I definitely agree. I, I don't want to see a future where Nigerian households are still depending on diesel generators, but I definitely see value in the ability to adapt in a failed state of provision. So the Nigerian government has not provided electricity for its people. The people found a way and they have adapted. And that type of innovation in a very decentralized, in a very autonomous manner, I think will be key for driving the energy transformation in, in, in the future. Mm. But in terms of Nigeria and California, one of the most exciting projects for me was the final chapter of my PhD was thinking about what drives people in two very different places to be energy independent, to want to self-generate? Um, because I grew up in Lagos and we used self-generation because we had to. And I came to California here living in Berkeley and I saw that people were self-generating even though they had a very reliable grid. And this was my culture shock. And and it really drove the rest, that chapter of my PhD to understand what is it about energy that causes us to want to self-determine in a way? And so the thesis of my work there was considering energy by whom. If you look all over the, the energy space, we think about energy for what? Are we generating energy for mining, for agriculture, for transportation? We think about energy from from what? Are we generating from diesel, from solar? And we also think about energy for who. We think about how many people can afford electricity. Coming from electricity uh, utility, you would think about how many people can afford your rates and you have an affordability plan. These are the, the core considerations of any energy planning paradigm. Now, the new thing that I'm, I'm, I'm really trying to kind of push forward is energy by whom. And I really believe that because of distributed technologies, we now have to consider not only energy for what or for who, 
but by whom, who produces energy, and who is the determiner of their energy uh, supply. And this has now transformed from a subpar solution, diesel generation, that is causing health issues, noise issues, you know, economic issues, to the prime solution that the whole world wants, distributed solar. And this is really a great opportunity where technology transformation is taking a, a social a social desire that's always been there and giving it some steam. As we get better and better access to electricity in, in our society, how do some of the societal mechanisms change? Because it seems like that act of actually self-sustaining mm-hmm. would be something that could bring communities together. Is is that better access pulling communities apart at all? Yeah. Yeah. Uh... I can't I can't say. I don't think I have evidence for either or. I'm not sure there's something to be lost by having an electricity access. I I I would say there's there's nothing to be lost. I think there is a nostalgia of closer communities, but I'm not sure that energy will be the deciding factor there. I think electricity access should always be the concerns of community change should not overcome the desire for electricity access. But but that said, I definitely see your your viewpoint of how communities will have to change because there's definitely going to have to be a transformation. And so most of the academic literature and most of the political uh, space has considered how do we technically transform our energy space. But def- definitely in the next 10 years, the focus will have to be how do we transform the institutions and the people and the the policies that have to make that transition happen? And so mm-hmm. communities, households, you know, social organization will have to change. I'm not quite sure exactly how, but I I guess and I hypothesize that there will be greater decentralized agency. And, and you're also very involved in, in building that approach, right? Um, tell us about your presentation to the National Assembly of Vietnam and some of the other um, work you've done in other areas of the world. Yeah, um, my presentations in Vietnam have been a real eye-opener. I've learned so much by working in that region. Um, Vietnam is you know, sitting in Southeast Asia and is one of the countries where the Mekong River flows through. So the Mekong River is... Um, a great river that runs between um, from China down Cambodia, Laos, Vietnam, and I think the key the key issue in Southeast Asia is the damming of the rivers and to produce electricity. You know, from a technical perspective, or from a more traditional energy planning perspective, this has always seemed like a great idea. But now, like I said, when we're no longer just considering electricity generation, we're now considering climate change as a driver, we're considering electricity access as a driver, we're considering equity as a driver, then the technical cost-benefit analysis of a, of a dam starts to kind of follow, uh, not make sense. Particularly for Vietnam, because it's downstream, the damming of the river upstream will really create a lot of problems for its delta, where millions of its people depend on food, for food and water and, and, and livelihood. So our presentations in Vietnam were to engage with stakeholders. I was invited by the Stimson Center in Washington, D.C., who has done amazing work really 
driving stakeholder engagement at the highest levels in Vietnam. And so they, they were the ones who organized this opportunity to present at the National Assembly and really have the ear of the stakeholders to say there are other there are other ways to drive non-hydropower generation in the region. It's key to understand that most of the hydropower generation is actually not being built in Vietnam. It's being built in Laos upstream. And so our goal presented in Vietnam was to think about what kind of political incentives, political pressures can be applied to present other alternatives to Laos. So if Laos wants to generate energy, it does not have to come from dam in the river. It could come from solar and wind. And I think Vietnam was just a really interesting place because we were able to present at very high levels. We were able to engage with the ministries and the stakeholders and really try to show what we had studied, you know, in the academic circles, what the Stimson Center had understood from, you know, a very political policy think tank perspective and bring that to like local grassroots engagement. And that was really, really an amazing experience. That's wonderful. What do you see with the work you're doing? What, what do you see the 5, 10, 20, 50 year outlook looking like? Hopefully in the context of Africa, we will see a harnessing of our culture to be independent and self-sufficient. We'll see that kind of culture and that agency and that innovation being harnessed for energy. We will we will still need centralized grids. We will need strong governments, strong policy making to create an energy sector that is well regulated, that is well managed. But at the same time, we will have a very large or significant part of our energy coming from distributed resources. And this is really an opportunity for Africa to transform itself, to choose its own path, really. A lot of development rhetoric looks backwards to inform the future, but Africa really has the opportunity now to define what its own energy future may be. I think the hope is that the political uh, factors, the financial mechanisms, and all of the attention that is being focused on Africa through the United Nations, the hope is that those, those drivers keep equity at its core so that we're not only transforming uh, Africa to be a place that is energy sufficient, but a place that people are self-sufficient. People have access to basic modern energy services that can then drive their educational goals, their financial goals, their health goals, and so that we can have a prosperous community and not just electricity access. That's so exciting. I'm, I'm glad we have people like you working on it. <laughs> I'm excited to see Fingers what happens. Fingers crossed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so that's great hearing about your research. Uh, what else is going on in your field, um, in energy, or, or even in kind of semi-related fields that you find interesting or exciting? Yeah, so I'm currently working for an energy utility, and we're thinking about distributed energy resources. We're thinking about how to modernize the grid. And I think it's really an interesting space where you kind of take policy, you take all the drivers that we talked about, and we turn that into actual technology demonstration, we turn that into actual field applications. So that's really interesting for me. I think the other interesting things that are happening in this space is really thinking about the other issues for climate change. It's not just energy. We have transportation that is a big chunk of our carbon emissions. We have food waste 
that is a big chunk of our carbon emissions. We, we have to think about how we manage water. Water is going to be one of the most water management is going to be one of the most critical issues in the next mm. decade. So energy is just one of the one of the factors that we have to consider. Um, water, food, and transportation, mobility, it's really going to be key drivers as well to achieve a low carbon future. So it's, it seems like a lot is going on at the macro scale. Um, mm-hmm. are, are there things that are going on at the, at the micro scale that I should be aware of or that I could do every day and just be a little bit better? Yeah, I think definitely in terms of motivating individuals, the key things that people say is reduce your meat consumption or particularly your beef your beef consumption. I think travel is also a, a big contributor of carbon carbon emissions. Um, mm-hmm. Electricity consumption. I think just being more aware of leaving lights on, leaving things plugged in can really be a big deal. I think one of the most interesting, more local effort around climate change in general is local food programs. You know, we have a lot of urban urban gardening. We have a lot of transformation of the food system in a very local level. Like I think of imperfect produce that is taking food that would typically be wasted and, you know, putting that into people's homes to eat. I think that's one of, it's a very great way of thinking about climate change action on a community level, on an individual level. Driving is also a key thing. There's still a lot of studies trying to see what the the impact of ride share like Uber and, and Lyft is going to be. But these are all things that I think impact us as individuals that we could adjust. I think in general, it's it's supporting the science, supporting the efforts of kind of the micro scale by your, our engagement, by our our ability to engage uh, stakeholders, government stakeholders, our a legislator. Mm-hmm. I think those are key ways that as an individual you could contribute. Oh, this is so exciting! I'm loving it. <laughs> it's, it's it's so interesting what you're doing. Oh, great. Um, what are some of the organizations or people that you look up to uh, that are doing great things within the energy space? I think one of the organizations that I look up to is the Stimson Center in Washington, D.C., because it's particularly their um, Southeast Asia program. Um, this is a group of very few people, two to three people, who put a lot of effort into taking you know, a few grants, research grants going into the region, making their their work go far in terms of engagement. There's a lot of energy policy, a lot of energy research that is very top level, top down, where we kind of prescribe what should be done. The Southeast Asia program at the Simpson Center starts from the bottom up by engaging the people in Vietnam and Cambodia and Laos and saying, Here's something we think. Here's how we think the energy future can be. Do you agree? Do you do you what what are your concerns? How if you agree, how can we help you achieve this? And it's not easy work. It takes a lot of patience. It takes a lot of understanding multiple objectives. And this is something that can't really be done on paper. They're an organization that I look up to. They're the ones that gave me the opportunity to engage in Vietnam at the ministries at the National Assembly. Um, and so I really appreciate that work. Great. Uh, in terms of other organizations, this is not particularly particularly connected to energy, but I think one of the things that I'm passionate about is increasing 
or broadening participation in STEM, in science, technology, engineering, and math, and looking at organizations that are starting from a very early level in the education system to engage students in STEM, engage them to retain them. And I think retaining a diverse pool of minds in the STEM field will really kind of help our research be broader, be more diverse, be more inclusive, and move us forward in our academic thinking from traditional ideas to modern and new ideas. STEM inclusivity and STEM diversity is really passionate. I look up to that that effort. Wonderful. I do want to ask you a little bit about the process as well of, of your PhD itself. So I'd like to hear a little bit about like what did some of your uh, research actually look like? Were you comparing documents? Were you talking to people? What what did that look like? The f- yeah, the first part of my research was a literature review. So you can think about that as comparing the state of research in in that field. So thinking about energy access in Africa, looking across documents, particularly in the academic literature, but also in the political, you know, in the great literature, which is just articles that are not published in academic journals and trying to understand the state of energy access. And the second part of my re- of my research was building an electricity modeling tool. So I used Microsoft Excel and Python, which is a programming language, to build an electricity tool that helps you think about how to transform your electricity mix. You think about how to integrate renewables. You can consider the cost the cost and benefits of your of your electricity mix. So that was... And who would use that type of tool? Would that be a community or a person? Um, yeah, so actually that's a key question for that research. So there are a lot of electricity tools that exist. So the key question for that was, how do we create a tool that is not as complex as the existing ones? Because electricity modeling does have to be complex. It has to be complex in to ensure that everything works. But how do we compact that complexity into a simple tool that engages the type of people, the type of stakeholders that we meet when we want to do local engagement? So if we go to the ministry, we don't really have a power systems engineer. We have whoever it may be from a different background that needs to understand when we say solar is cheaper. They kind of want to see what's behind the black box. That was the motivation for building that tool. And so... um, the hope is for it to broaden civic engagement, uh, and we'll see how that goes. I just I just finished my PhD this summer, so let's see how that tool can be adopted. The, Congratulations! So the tool is actually out in the wild now, being used. Yeah, it's it's we're trying to set it up on a website still, um, but mm-hmm. it's it's being completed. It's in our kind of repository, and the next step is to put it out. Um, there is a, an Excel version that is ready to be used. And I've sent it to most of the people that I work with to to adopt it. Great. And that I, I that I developed with some of my team members in the energy and resources group. The third the, the third part of my PhD, like I said, was understanding those comparisons between Nigeria and California, two very different places. And that was the most stretching part of my PhD because I, I'm an engineer by training. I really had to learn to think like a social scientist. But thankfully, I was in a program whose main objective was to make me think outside of my traditional training. (laughs) So the energy and resources group, the main objective is to transform the way you think 
and to be different than your traditional training. And so I was really fortunate to work with Dr. Charisma AC, Professor Charisma AC in uh, the city planning department at UC Berkeley. And she really kind of trained me to think in, like a social scientist to use urban planning ideas to question energy energy issues. And that was fantastic. It involved a lot of reading, uh, mm-hmm. you know, big books about big ideas. And f- for example, there's a book about uh, splint- splintering urbanism. This is a very um, significant or critical book in the urban planning literature. I had never read it. So just reading that kind of shifts the way I think about energy into thinking about it in from an urban planning perspective. So she was very helpful in transforming that. And so once you kind of figure out your questions and you figure out kind of your methods, then you go through a qualifying exam and then you write your dissertation. Can you tell me a little bit about the actual process of the comps and like the exams you had to take? Yeah. Yeah. So the the comps exam uh, in my program was called the qualifying exam. This is a stage in which you have considered what your research question is going to be. You have considered the fields that you want to contribute to. And by by the way you do that is that you read about the field and you see what is the gap. I think the key thing about a PhD is what is the gap that you're going to fill. And once you figure out that gap, you get four professors in the room. (laughs) It's very intimidating. (laughs) And they question you on how you think you're going to fill that gap. Does, Does the gap even really exist? What methods are you going to use? What is your timeline? And I, the goal of the qualifying exam is really to push you to the point where they think they have exhausted your knowledge. You know, they, they always get you to that one question that you don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so you typically spend about, you know, four to six months preparing. But it is the, one of the heights of your PhD experience. And, you know, it kind of transforms you from a PhD student to a PhD candidate, and you're on your way to writing your dissertation. Nikki, it's been incredible hearing about your research. I appreciate what you're doing for the world, and I'm really looking forward to seeing where it goes in the next 5, 10, 50 years. Yeah, thank you so much. It's been a great opportunity to just talk about my work. I really appreciate the invitation. Absolutely. And, and we do have one last question for you. Sure. The name of the podcast is Somebody Call a Doctor, so we want to know in what sort of emergency should somebody call you? <laughs> When your lights go out. <laughs> I, I don't know if I'll be able to fix it, but I'll try. <laughs> <laughs> okay, wonderful. It'll probably just be a technical issue that the utility can fix very quickly. <laughs> um, but I'll, I'll tell you why it turned off, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fantastic. All right, Nikki, thank you so much for your time here. It was so interesting hearing about the work you do on energy and energy policy um, all around the world. Thank you very much, Colin, for having me. It was a great opportunity. Thanks so much for listening to Somebody Call a Doctor. Today, we've been talking with Dr. Nikki Avila about her research at Berkeley, studying equitable access to electricity and the socio-political impact of the low-carbon energy transition. For more information on Nikki, Check out our website, somebodycallaphd.com. Thanks to one of our listeners, Pam Hornke, who is currently studying sustainability and wrote in about content she'd like to hear, which helped lead to this episode happening. If you know a recent PhD candidate or graduate who is doing interesting work worth sharing, let us know by emailing us at somebodycallaphd at gmail.com. 
see you next time on Somebody Call a Doctor.